Hi, this is Robbie Krieger from The Doors, and you are listening to Fiercely Independent KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and for the world at www.kpfk.org. Support free speech and free forum radio. Peace. politics and above religion a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom it is the study of consciousness the mystery of awareness which cannot be measured yet will not be denied stay tuned as we explore consciousness the fundamental nature of reality welcome to the ageless wisdom mystery school with michael benner Hello, neighbors, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I am your host, Michael Benner. I appreciate you joining us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Southern California, and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Got a great show for you today. I'm real excited and even honored, in all honesty, to present an eminent speaker on the topic of human consciousness and self-awareness, Peter Russell. I first interviewed Peter in the mid-80s, right after publication of his first book, Global Brain, which was about consciousness and awareness in a global sense, the idea that humanity was awakening to what at the time was often called an Aquarian conspiracy a realization of the mutual benefits of working together for a mutual good, and finding a balance between individuality, nationality, and global awareness, the idea of one planet, one people, one heart. The common goals and objectives of individuals who may differ in many ways, but could nevertheless, through conscious awareness, come together and work in harmony. I'm rather intrigued by how naive I was at the time, speaking only for myself, but maybe for others too, that I believed that this global awakening would come upon us faster than it actually has. In some areas, there's been great advancement. I think the acceptance of the LGBT community, of uh, gay marriage, of, uh, of the acceptance of the transgender community, fluidity in general in sexuality and the breaking out of the binary gender molds was an enormous advancement that really happened quite quickly, relatively speaking. And there's evidence of other advancements, the decriminalization of marijuana, the desire to create a more equitable approach to law enforcement and incarceration is another example. As literacy and Self-awareness expands on the globe. Awareness of preserving the planet's life support systems is growing. And this insight and this understanding is one of the primary definitions of what it means to be a conscious, sentient human being. Our guest today, Peter Russell, is going to talk about consciousness in a number of different ways. 
Now, initially, we may think of conscious as the opposite of unconscious. You're either awake or asleep. Are you alert and awake and aware of what's going on, or are you unconscious? Well, it's really not that easy if you consider for a moment that even when you're asleep or seemingly unconscious, some part of the mind, referred to as the unconscious self, is still conscious. <laughs> Seems odd to say the unconscious is conscious, but you have dreams, right? Sometimes they're lucid. More often than not, they're remembered when you wake up in the morning. But the very fact that you dream when you're asleep indicates you're conscious while you're unconscious. There's also an odd trance state that we experience when we're particularly stressed and overwhelmed. For example, you find yourself sitting at a traffic light after it's already turned green and somebody behind you has to tap on the horn to bring you back to reality. And, oh yeah, the light's green, why am I still sitting here? Where was I? Where were you? Where, where did we go? We go away, swept away by thoughts that demanded our attention. The unconscious mind, in other words, is constantly petitioning us for our conscious attention. And often we're willing to go there just to escape the rat-a-tat-tat frenzy of living in the world. We can talk about behavior as being conscious, that is, deliberate and purposeful. More likely, our behavior tends to be reflexive an action without any real thought, feeling, or understanding behind it. And rarely do we even discern between deliberate, purposeful thinking and the monkey mind or the frenzy that researchers now call TUTS, T-U-T, which stands for Task Unrelated Thinking. The mind is a lot like an automobile with an engine that never turns off. You can get in the car and drive it. You can use your mind to solve problems and understand yourself and the world. But when you cease doing that, and there's nothing in particular to think about, no task to work on, no problem to solve, the mind continues churning out thoughts, in air quotes, thoughts, according to its own agenda, often negative and self-loathing, critical full of fears of uncertainty and inadequacy. And so, learning to be more conscious includes the awareness of, am I the one doing the thinking, or is this my unconscious mind petitioning for my attention, and who is this I anyway, the voice in my head, the part of me that's listening? Can I get behind that awareness? in the cause and effect of things. Now, the reason I find this so fascinating and have agreed to do a radio program devoted every week to some aspect of consciousness and awareness is that I think it's fundamental to everything, which of course would include social and political activism. What is often described as the polarization of society in the 21st century or I call it the Great Divide, has very little to do with politics, government, policy, partisanism. I'd like to suggest the divide is around being more conscious or clinging to an identity that is less self-aware. 
Now, admittedly, I'm going to use a broad brush here, and there's a lot of in-between, but let's talk about the polls. On the right, we have people who celebrate self-interest. That's their primary concern. They also tend to be rather materialistic, and for any number of reasons, quite frightened. These are the people who own the guns. Watch how defensive a gun owner gets when you suggest that maybe the reason they embrace their weaponry is that they're personally afraid of, of what they do not know, but that's the point of fear. All fear is really more about what's unknown than any danger, real or imagined. On the left, we tend to have people who are less concerned with the separated self and more interested in harmony, in mutual benefits. They tend to be less materialistic, less fearful, and more interested in what's good for everyone. The win-win solution, the greater good, and what is sometimes in Eastern philosophy called metta, or loving-kindness, compassion, uh, truth, wisdom, and beauty. This, I believe, is at the root of the Great Divide. Again, I hasten to add, there is a middle way, an enormously broad range of people that are a little of both, on their way from being on the right, fearful, isolated, self-interested, but moving toward greater equanimity, harmony, and a desire to live happily in peace with people with whom you disagree. In fact, to cherish the uniqueness of the individual and to replace the false assumptions of binary thinking with the broad horizons of love, authenticity, and compassion. So this represents a challenge to those of us who like to think of ourselves as being personally, socially, politically active. If we are activists, what action do we emphasize? Well, we can march in the street, we can write letters, we can petition our government for a redress of our grievances, and perhaps most importantly, just educate yourself. Read books. Go to the li When was the last time you were at a library? Go to, go to the library. Find out what's on the shelves. Read. That's one of the big differences between the left and the right. Reading and the desire to understand that which we do not yet understand. That's real wisdom. To be aware of what you do not know, rather than cling desperately to what you think you know. Our opponents in this should be recognized as largely fearful people who deserve our compassion and our understanding, as difficult as that may be. We cannot hate people filled with hate and expect them to become kind, loving people. As has been said by any number of philosophers, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. The light of wisdom, the light of understanding, the light of compassion. We've done a number of shows in the past about the nature of consciousness, and today's will not be the last, I assure you. It's a fascinating concept. It's primary to our understanding of reality. It has numerous meanings, and we're about to hear from a true expert on the subject, Peter Russell. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM. 
KPFK in Los Angeles. This is KPFK. Because she understood her language, the next day she quit the job. Took it off the table. The Aware Show with Lisa Gar. That's fantastic. That's interesting. I love it. It really does. It really does show you answers to things. Because she understood the dream, she uh, acted on it like the next morning. How can we expedite that and remember our dreams more? The Aware Show with Lisa Gar. Wednesday and Thursday afternoons at 1. This is KPFK. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK all over Southern California and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. I want to mention this program is podcast on all platforms as well. And I'm really excited to have as my guest today a fellow that uh, I want to say first interviewed. The only other time I've interviewed him was back in the mid-'80s when his first book, Global Brain, came out. And even then it was by telephone. We've never actually met, and uh, if we did today, we wouldn't be able to shake hands because of COVID. So we'll do the best we can with uh, this uh, teacher, uh, writer, uh, mystic, philosopher, and I'd like to say friend of mine, certainly a, a comrade in the study of consciousness and awareness, Peter Russell. Peter, welcome to KPFK. Thank you. Lovely to be with you, even if virtually. Yes, indeed. Yes, I think we're rounding the corner on this COVID nonsense, so it shouldn't be too long before the conferences and the events and the rock concerts open up. That's that's my hope. I'm getting a little bit of cabin fever at this point. Peter, I'd like to start with you by defining terms. Let's talk about consciousness and awareness the introduction to this program, The Ageless Wisdom, that we do every week here, Tuesdays at 1 o'clock, describes consciousness as the fundamental nature of reality. Others might say the ground of being. It's the one concept that we really cannot get behind. It is absolutely primary. If someone says to you, what is consciousness? How do you get a handle on that? For a start, I would say that a couple of things. First of all, consciousness is not something we have or something we can study. When you put N-E-S-S onto a word, you take an adjective and make it a noun in order to speak about it. So, you know, happiness is the state of being happy. Happiness doesn't exist, but we all know the feeling of being happy. And it's the same with consciousness. There's no thing called consciousness, but we are all conscious. So what the word is referring to is the fact that we all have an internal experience. We're all experiencing the world. That's what it refers to. And that is something which is absolutely undeniable. Everything I know, every experience, every sensation, perception, thought, feeling, are all appearing in my consciousness, in my mind, if you like. So there's that fundamental quality that is absolutely intrinsic to our own personal being. But then we also use the word in in other ways, in terms of the type of experience we're having. So 
there's the general sense that we are experiencing beings. And then we, you know, sometimes we talk about, um, you know, we say, oh, well, a person who's asleep isn't conscious, but they're having dreams. So there's still something appearing in their consciousness. Or, um, you know, we talk about a political consciousness or an environmental consciousness. We're talking about the, the sort of thoughts and experiences, the ideas, the beliefs one has, which again, they're just appearing in this basic fundamental awareness that we have. So I, when I talk about consciousness, I'm not talking about a particular type of consciousness, a particular way of seeing the world or a particular way of thinking about the world. I'm interested in this fundamental quality that we all know and which is absolutely undeniable, the fact that each of us is aware. So, so that's the way I use the word, the very fact we are aware. And for me, I use the word aware and conscious basically synonymously. That's just me. I know other people draw distinctions between them in different ways. But when I'm talking about being conscious, I'm talking about being aware. You know, I, the one thing I can say for sure is I am aware. What I'm aware of changes moment by moment. If you don't mind, I'd like to lean into you on that. Uh, not because my sense of it is right and yours is not, but just as a, a student who's uh, grasping for straws here, I've read Nisargadatta say that, in his opinion, awareness really requires capitalization. Awareness is absolute, and consciousness is relative. You're conscious of this or conscious of that, but the ground of being is awareness. Um I suppose there are others who reverse it. Is that why you choose to just do away with it and conflate the two? Um, yes, because, I mean, as I say, different people have different ways of using the word. Nisargadatta has his ways and he distinguishes it. Other people distinguish it in different ways. And so for me, in my exploration, I don't feel a need to draw a distinction there. So I, that's why I use the word synonymously. As I say, you know, other people, as you point out, use the words, they can make a distinction, and different people will make different distinctions. Well, even if we use awareness, capital A awareness is the absolute, there would have to be a small a awareness, as in, I'm aware of this, but not that. Exactly. And we could say the same with consciousness, capital C consciousness, and then we are conscious of this or conscious of that. Yeah. So there's, and that's what I'm saying you know, what you're calling capital A awareness is the fact that I am aware, period. Not I am aware of this or I'm aware of that, but I am aware, period. That's it. So the mystics, particularly the Eastern philosophers, have suggested, and probably not unanimously, but I think there's a consensus, that before the Big Bang or before the material universe existed and there was anything to be conscious of, there was awareness. Uh, are, are you in accord with, <laughs> with that view? I'm agnostic. Um, I don't know. I know they say that. Um, who knows? Who knows? I, I'm not one to believe something because somebody else says it or because some mystic says it or it's written down in some spiritual book. 
I tend to just trust my own my own experience. And so when I'm talking about being conscious, I'm talking about some, just the level of something you and I share. I think other animals share it. You know, dogs are clearly conscious. I mean, sometimes people say dogs aren't conscious. And yet when we take them to the vet, we'll give them an anesthetic for an operation. And I say, well, if you're, if the dog isn't conscious, why do you want to make it unconscious with an anesthetic? So clearly, you know, we think dogs experience. So we can take it down into other, other species. But as to the nature of the universe, I think, I think there's a confusion people make here because we know that being conscious, being aware is absolutely fundamental to ourselves and that everything, everything I experience is, if you like, an activity in my own consciousness. So consciousness is fundamental in that way. We then make the step to saying that is true of the world out there. And, you know, we can justify that. I've argued for it. But who really knows? Who really knows? I like that you say that. You do not seem to have any problem with saying I don't know. I think it's a wonderfully humbling experience to say, well, we don't know. In fact, we're not sure what light is. We're not, we only have a bunch of theories about gravity. Electromagnetism is baffling to us. I I think we could use a little more of that humility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, it's science. What science tells us is how things work, basically how things interact, how a photon interacts with an electromagnetic field, how a ball falling under gravity. It describes how things work, but science doesn't tell us anything about what is there. Well, indeed, this idea that reality is assembled in our brains is something that I've known since, you know, school, since science class. But I must tell you, Peter, that a few years ago, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had an experience of it. And the story, briefly, is that as a result of retinopathy, I had some hemorrhaging in my eyes. And the blood pooled at the top of my eye. And I could see it sloshing around at the top of my eye. Of course, then I was reminded... I became conscious of something I knew but had forgotten that, oh, yeah, my brain is, uh, what's the word, inverting and reversing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everything that my eye sees, that the, that the eye perceives it as upside down and reversed, and then the brain has to turn it right side up. Right. But the experience was uh, disconcerting, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Everything we know is actually the brain's representation of what is out there. And data comes in, you know, through the eyes, through, you know, the skin, through our hearing. We get all this data and the brain miraculously, in a fraction of a second, puts all this data together, works out what's out there visually and with the sound and other things, and puts it all together and we have this 3D, touchy-feely, stereo sound reality that we live in. But the reality we experience is not actually the reality out there. We aren't experiencing it directly. 
we are experiencing what happens in consciousness in our minds as a result of what is out there. And that to me is, that to me is fascinating. It is. And again, there's a difference between knowing this and really understanding. We can be told that solid objects are mostly empty space. We can be told that there are these tiny little particles that you should probably explain for us are really not particles at all. But that objects that appear to be very solid have no edges. They're just dances of electricity that we assemble in our brain. It's quite miraculous. It's just fascinating. It is, yes. To to consider. I mean, what is your fantasy of what would exist objectively if we had some way of seeing energy in place of form? Right. Um all I can say is, is there is information out there. By information, I mean in the sense of distinction. If I look, um, you take my fingertip, you know, there's this bit is solid and pinky color, but the bit around it here is transparent. We call that air. So there's a difference, you know, there's information here. This is air that's transparent, which is different information from the fact that this is solid and pinky. So, you know, we take that right down, you know, an electron. All we know about an electron is a bit of information. We call it a particle. That's just how we describe it. It's not all we know is there's something we put a number on called charge. There's something we put a number on called mass. There's something we put a number on called spin. And and science works out how those numbers work. But that is just in, all we can say is we have information about something we call an electron we have information and you take it all the way up you know when we look out to the galaxies we have information coming from the light that reaches us so i think all we can really say is there's a field of infinitely detailed structured and massively complex information and what the senses are doing is detecting that information so when when i look out and i see a green tree the information is a certain frequency of light coming from a certain direction. That's information. And so, and the brain processes information. And then I think what is happening is that information appearing in consciousness appears as this. So what I'm seeing is how information is represented in the brain. I think all we can say out there is there is information. And that's where some leading physicists are going, saying that's all we can say about the world out there is it's information. And what it's structured in, what is the stru- you know, what, what is information embedded in, maybe we never know. The fact that we have mathematics, that we can apply numbers, that we can discern formula, most of them quite simple and elegant in describing, for example, motion, that we're able to, (laughs) you know, drop a robot car on Mars or do a flyby of Neptune. And Pluto would be fascinating enough if all these objects were standing still, but they're in orbit (laughs) and we have to do this extremely advanced calculus to 
figure this stuff out and how to drop into orbit and all of this stuff. Is numbers really the only way to handle this information, this esoteric information? Um, when you say esoteric, you mean in terms of esoteric in terms of the physical world, that sort of sense, rather than spiritual? Well, I, I, I say esoteric information as opposed to data. Uh, I mean, something you read in a book or chisel on a stone tablet or something, you know, that we think of information as rather objective and solid, but you're saying no information right. is something we can't really get our hands on here. It's a matter of subjective perception. I'm t- I suppose I'm talking about the raw data. There's raw data out there, not information in the sense in which we use it, you know, the information you get from reading a book or listening to our conversation, that's a much higher level of information. So when I'm using information, I'm using it in a very technical sense of the data that is there. That's what I mean. And I think, you know, mathematics basically describes how the universe works. And every science in the end comes down to a mathematical framework underneath it all. And the basic mathematics tends to be very, very simple and very, very elegant. You take, you know, some of the fundamental equations that we work with the whole time, like, um, you know, Schrodinger's equation, you know, it's written in just a couple of symbols with an equal sign or the basic wave equation. You know, everything is waves vibration. The basic equation is so simple. It's just, again, you know, a couple of terms. It's then working out putting the values in and working out what actually happens in reality, how Schrodinger's equation becomes, you know, an electron doing a certain thing or how the wave equation becomes light bouncing off a mirror or, you know, the light coming from Pluto. That is complex. When you try to solve the equations, it gets very, very complex. But the very basic equations which govern the universe are so, so elegant and so, so simple. And that's why, you know, I thought I'd say, you know, God God must have been a mathematician. <laughs> but Indeed. It's, but it's just, it, it amazes me that it is so, so simple, the very fundamental nature of mathematics, not the, when you get into the complex of solving things, but yeah. There's beauty in it. There's absolutely beauty. I think most mathematicians would say that. I mean, I, I feel that there's beauty in the elegance. Yeah, you look at the elliptical orbit, and I remember in high school learning that the uh, the radius of that orbit uh, swept out equal areas regardless of the speed. Is it? Yeah, it's just it's not only beautiful; it seems to have a sense of humor. It's almost <laughs> like how dare you suggest this is chaotic, right, and random when there is so much order. And both things are true. There's plenty of chaos in the universe. Yeah. But even that chaos can be formulated mathematically. That's that's what's been fascinating in recent years with chaos theory. You can specify the mathematics, but predicting where it's going to lead is so... It's unpredictable. But the basic mathematics is very simple. I love this subject, Peter. There is nothing that fascinates (laughs) me more than the study of consciousness and awareness. And we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, let's see if we can talk about this in some 
practical or pragmatic ways to help us wake up, stay awake, and continue the awakening or enlightening process? Because the theory is one thing, but let's put it into practice, okay? Yep, love to. Peter Russell, my guest on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. You're listening to KPFK in Los Angeles. And we'll be right back after this. Please help keep independent journalism alive and KPFK Radio strong. Become a Sustainer Circle member of KPFK by pledging at any level. $10, $20, $100 per month, whatever suits you. This is Verdine White of Earth, Wind & Fire, encouraging you to make your tax-deductible donation today at 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK every Tuesday at 1 o'clock. I'm your host, Michael Benner, and we're very fortunate to have a special guest today, Peter Russell, who is an eminent speaker and writer, a, a philosopher, and, and, and I would say mystic. I don't know. Are you comfortable with that term? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, then. <laughs> it means um, I could go into it, but no, I, I, I don't like it. It's high, too highfalutin. Too highfalutin, too much ego in it? It can be. It can be. I'm just, I'm just interested in the nature of consciousness and my own how to – um, basically liberate, free up my own consciousness. Well, at least I didn't call you a guru. Yeah, that would have been much worse. <laughs> much, much worse. <laughs> and indeed, we're all students, yeah? Right. But actually, I mean, just to say mystic, it actually comes from the Greek, mystos, which means that which is not seen, since we have mystery. And so there's a way in which the mystic, what the mystic is doing is exploring the unseen world of the mind. The scientist explores the seen world out there. The mystic explores the unseen world of the mind. So in that sense, I would technically call myself a mystic, but not in the everyday sense of some enlightened guru or something, no. You know, one of the biggest changes in my life came... And I guess it's uh, sort of Socratic. I didn't think of it that way at the time. When I shifted my attention from the knowledge that I thought I was accumulating to what I did not know. Uh And to become gradually aware that the more I understood about life and existence and so-called reality, the less I knew. The more I know, the less. Mm-hmm. I'll say it this way: the more, the more I came to understand, the more I realized there was yet to be understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that idea. I mean, nobody likes to know it all, right? <laughs> right. So this position of, well, I don't know, but I got some great questions. I think there's a lot to be said for having really good questions maybe more valuable than really good answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about a riddle I read in the Upanishads, and I can only paraphrase it, but I believe it's something like, uh, what cannot be seen, heard, or felt, yet without which nothing could be seen, heard, or felt. Right, 
Right. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I think that comes from it's several times. I know it from the Chandoga Upanishad, and and it's in other. Yes, and what they're referring to here is consciousness. We can we cannot see consciousness. We cannot feel it, uh, and yet without our being conscious, we wouldn't see, hear, feel anything. So what that riddle is pointing to is to the fact that we are aware. Awareness itself has no qualities, so it cannot be described in any way. And that's why, you know, mystics sometimes say their experience is ineffable. They cannot put the experience in words, not because we don't have the words in our language, but there's nothing there to be put in words. It's just what they're talking about is the mind becoming still, becoming silent. And that is a very, very powerful experience, which I think has inspired so many of the great spiritual traditions, is is when the mind becomes still, there's this sense of ah, relief, peace, openness of the heart. But it doesn't have any particular form to it. And so that's why it cannot be known, it cannot be felt or tasted or seen. What can be felt or tasted or seen are the experiences that we become aware of, the experiences that arise in consciousness. So, it's it, yeah, it's a profound statement, that, that riddle. That's what it's pointing to, yeah. Indeed, and I think in our lives, when we as young people begin to sense that we're on the treadmill or a hamster cage, and we begin to wonder, well, there's got to be more than earning and spending and producing and consuming what in the world is this about? Why am I doing this? What else could there be? Experience, right? Experience, unfoldment, uh, growing, evolving. Is that central in your mind? Um, I look at it as what is it we're really looking for? You know, in all our chasing in the world, all the things we, you know, look for, um, pay for, whatever it is, do in our lives – Ultimately, if you analyze it, you know, all the way down, why do we do this? In the final analysis, it comes to the fact we're looking to be in a better state of mind, to be happier, more at ease, more content, more joyful. We can put different words on it, but ultimately we're looking for a better state of mind. And yet we're trying to get that better state of mind by getting things in the world, which is a very, very long way around. And I think what what I think all the great teachers have realized is that the chasing things out there can bring temporarily a better state of mind. You know, we buy a new jacket or something, we feel good because it looks nice. But, you know, that effect soon wears off. It's just a very temporary thing. And I think what they've all discovered is that it is our, our thinking, our worry, our concern, uh, self-created discontent that actually gets in the way of our natural state of being. And I think our natural state of being is one of ease, contentment. But what we do is we, it gets veiled, if you like. It gets covered up by the fact that most of our thinking is about what am I going to do, what's wrong, what's right, I'm getting excited about this or upset about that. All that thinking, in one way or another, has some element of, unease, discontent about it, or or something else that can be very stimulating. But it, all of that covers up 
this natural quality of ease that we have. And so I think what all the great teachers are saying is rather than seeking out there looking for things, which, you know, we do need to look for certain things. We need to keep ourselves healthy and well-fed and all that stuff. But that that's that's important. But if we're looking for happiness, then the real path to being happy on a much more permanent level is to remove the thinking that makes us unhappy. Basically, that's what they're saying, is all taking all the thinking that creates unhappiness and discontent and stepping out of that, not following those particular thoughts. And this is what meditation is about, really, is we drop back into that natural state of contentment. Of course, something comes up and we start getting worried about something again and we lose it. But I think the what they're saying is that potential of dropping back into our natural state of ease is always there. We don't need to go chasing things or experiences in order to get it. I think Rumi says the same thing about love or uh, something like... Uh, Again, I can only paraphrase, but our, ours is not to seek and find love, but to remove the barriers to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, love, the love is there. I mean, when we drop back into our, into what I could just call this natural state of being, there is an intrinsic open heartedness to it. It's the mind that gets in the way. The mind gets closed. The mind gets judgmental. The mind decides it doesn't like certain things. It's the mind, the thinking mind, which isn't loving. But when the thinking mind becomes quiet, then that natural lovingness is there. That open-heartedness is there. We see it. So it's absolutely right. We just need to re remove the veils to its presence. Yeah, oh, remove the veils. I like that. Um I want to go over a couple of terms with you. This idea of being aware of being aware or noticing what you notice. I've seen that referred to as metacognition, but I've also seen metacognition defined as thinking about thinking, which is a very different, <laughs> yeah. which is very different altogether. Uh -huh. Do we have a word, Peter, for being aware of being aware? Uh, my word is it's a trap. <laughs> it, it and not even to it gets us into vicious circles. Is because um, there isn't you know as I said awareness has no qualities. So in a way we can't be aware of awareness. Um, we can recognize intellectually. And I think this is what they're talking about as metacognition. I can be aware, I can know as a fact that I am aware. You know, as we've been talking about in the earlier segment, it's the one thing I cannot deny. But that is, that is a cognition, that is an idea. I know that I am aware. But there's a sense in which that recognition comes as I recognize that whatever I'm experiencing I am that, I am that which is experiencing it. I, it's like aware, I think I and awareness are synonymous. So when we say become aware of being aware, I would rephrase that as I would become aware of that sense of I that is aware. But the reason I say it's a trap is we then start thinking, oh, 
oh, my eye is this, I found it, or it's this feeling in my heart, or it's this. These are all other experiences. And what people like, you know, you mentioned Ramana Maharshi, people that you mentioned in Sagadatta, what all these people are pointing to is an inner inquiry is to saying, what does the word I point to in our experience? What does it point to? Um, you know, sometimes people phrase the question, who am I? Which I think is very misleading because we start looking for something called I. But the real exploration is, is just to look inside and say, what does I point to? And as you do that, um, you gradually realize there is no I. It's not pointing to anything. There is just, there's lots of different senses of I, but there's just the being aware is the fundamental truth. A couple of weeks ago on this show, I was talking about the phenomenon of voices in our heads and listening to those voices and the inherent duality of listening to a voice that you identify simultaneously as the voice and the listener. And yet, with a little bit of study, you'll notice there's not just one voice. There's this idea there's a CEO or a chairman of the board in your brain. My The voices in my head argue all the time. Mm-hmm. They're not of a single mind. There's a lot of, uh, uh, yes, eat the chocolate brownie. No, are you crazy? That thing's you know, a 1,000 calories. Don't you dare eat that chocolate. Yeah, but I want it. No, you really don't. Um, evolutionary psychologists are talking now about six, seven, eight different streams of influence that through some illusion of self we perceive as unitary, but right. they're really not. Right. And we think I, we hear that voice in our head and we think it is me, but actually I am that which is noticing the voice in my head. I am not thinking the voice, the thinking, the voice in its head, it goes on. It's triggered by various things and it's some of it's habitual. It comes from whatever. It comes from our history in some way or another. And we hear that voice and then we make the mistake of thinking that voice is me. But it isn't. It's just a thought we're experiencing. And I think part of the um, inner journey is learning to disidentify with the thought. Instead of saying, you know, I, you know, instead of saying, I think this, it's like I am experiencing this thought appearing in my mind. But the I is the experiencer. It's not the thinker. And that's, I think, you know, that, that's the first step. That's a, such a common um, misunderstanding. I mean, it's, it's, it's an obvious misunderstanding to make. I think we all make it, but then part of the process of waking up is realizing, no, I am that which is aware of the thought. I am not the thinker. Well, I think part of what's, uh, <laughs> I'm even leading my sentence with, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> I think, I think that part of the problem is few people distinguish, and I must admit, including me in my daily life and affairs, between a deliberate and purposeful cognitive attempt to solve a problem, let's say, or understand something, and that monkey mind that continues on according to its own agenda, 
when I put my feet up and stare out the window, uh, I've heard these called tuts, task unrelated thinking, or more commonly perhaps intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. But we don't even have the language to distinguish. I'm deliberately thinking from who are these ghost voices that are haunting me and right. demonizing me, the self-loathing inner critic that's going yeah. on. I think you're absolutely right. You know, some thinking, thinking is a wonderful thing. It's made us what we are as human beings. And it's great to better think and work out how to do this or be going on a trip. What do I need to do? Prepare for things. Thinking, thinking is wonderful. It's allowed us to become what we are. But 90% of our thinking is just, is unnecessary. It's stuff. It's what you call tuts. It's stuff going round and round our head. A lot of it is repeats. We're going over the same stuff again and again. We're worrying about things that probably will never, ever happen. And so I see part of the path of awakening is learning to recognize that. And then when we realize we're caught in some habitual mode, is just choosing not to follow it. I think this is, you know, a fundamental choice we can make. I notice I'm, oh, wondering about, you know, did I do the right thing when I said this to somebody yesterday? There I go again, just choose. I'm not going to follow that thought anymore and just leave it behind. It may come back later, but we can choose in any moment, and this is what I think is is our real power of choice, we can choose not to follow a particular line of thinking. And this is the non-attachment that the Eastern teachers have been trying to uh, get us to understand for some time now. Not detachment, but non-attachment. Right, Right. yes. It's very different from detachment. We are still... Detachment has the idea of not being engaged in the world. We are fully engaged in the world, but we're not so attached to how it should be or what's going to happen. So we can be freer. We can be freer to engage in the world without the background of anxiety, intention, worry, etc. Sometimes it's necessary. Worry is necessary, but a lot of it we don't need. And so it's choosing, choosing just to step out of it and, and notice how it feels to step out of it. I think that's what's important. One more term I want to run by you and uh, uh, play around with here. I'm not crazy about it, but we got to have some term other than monism, I guess, for the idea that everything is a part of a unitary mind. Panpsychism is a big, awkward word. Define it for us, Peter. What is panpsychism? Well, panpsychism literally from the Greek, pan means all and psyche means mind. And so panpsychism says everything has mind. Well, what you could say is everything has an interior aspect, which we could, you know, be calling subjective experience. And, you know, we're saying, you know, we assume dogs do, I assume fish do, I assume a spider does. What happens in its mind may be much, much smaller than what happens in my mind. But panpsychism basically says there's nowhere you can draw a line that that aspect of there being an interior world, which, you know, we might just call being conscious, that is there in everything. I've seen research that says even slime mold can find the shortest path 
problem in a microscopic maze. Mm -hmm. So if slime mold is conscious, why not the flowers? Why not the rocks? Right, right. Why not the sky? Yes, that's what what panpsychism is saying. It's basically saying consciousness does not arise from the brain. It says that consciousness is already there. What the brain does is feed information into consciousness to give us our experience. So the brain of a spider is much, much smaller than my brain, but its brain is feeding in information to its consciousness, and it has its own little tiny spidery view of the world. Is this any different than monism or the non-duality of Advaita? Yes, yeah. Monism says there is only one, and so the two sorts of monism... There's material monism, which says there is only matter, energy, space, time, and consciousness some, somehow comes out of matter and energy. Or, or there's conscious monism, which says everything is consciousness appearing as matter, space, or time. Non-duality is different. Non, um, it isn't a monism. And I think this is a common misunderstanding. I mean, non-duality is a direct translation of the Sanskrit Advaita, which literally means not two. If they meant one, they'd have said it. And the not two actually means it's not just two. There is a oneness and a duality together. And, I mean, you mentioned the Upanishads, and it's in the Chandogya Upanishad, that bit you quoted. Um, the son goes off to school, comes back many years later, and he's learnt all these wonderful things of the time, and his father says to you, but did they teach you about that which cannot be seen, known, etc.? And he says, no, what is it? And then his father goes into a lot of discussion and says, but one of the things he says, is, you see these two pots. These two pots are both made of clay. These are very clearly different pots. There's a duality here. This pot is not that pot. However, they are both made of the same clay. And more importantly, the clay doesn't lose its clayness by becoming a pot. The clay stays its essence as clayness, even though it's taking the form of this pot and it's taking the form of that pot. So what he's saying is consciousness is every, every experience is founded in consciousness. That's what he's pointing to. And the experiences are very different. So there's a duality in my experience. I mean, right now I'm having a certain experience. Half an hour later, I'm going to be having another experience or one second later. So there's a duality. There's a very natural duality in the world. And there's an underlying oneness to it. So Advaita is, is saying, yes, there's, there's two. And don't get sucked in by the two because there's also a common element to everything. I like that, the clayness of things. The, the That's like uh, the ocean is in every raindrop and what did Blake say, the universe in every grain of sand. Yeah. Um, reminds me of the uh, hermetic axiom, as above, so below. Peter, if only we had uh, seven or eight more hours here. <laughs> <laughs> You've got nearly a dozen books. Where should our listeners begin to read your work global brain science to god what um, what would you suggest 
the global brain is 40 years old and I, <laughs> it's interesting to read as what I was thinking 40 years ago. I wouldn't point people to that now, unless you want to see what I was thinking 40 years ago. Um, From Science to God was my most recent major book, uh, but that's getting a bit out of date now. But that was really looking at consciousness and my own journey of how I started off as a scientist with no interest whatsoever in spirituality, but how my investigation of consciousness got me to see that there was something to all the religions. But the book I'm really excited about is the book I've just finished writing, which is called Letting Go of Nothing, which is coming out this August. And the subtitle is Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. And it's really about letting go. And the title, Letting Go of Nothing, is the fact that what we're letting go of are not things. You know, we think we're letting go of a relationship or a house or money, but we're not. We're letting go of our beliefs about it, our assumptions, our feelings about it. And those are internal. So what we're letting go of is a way of seeing things rather than things in itself. So it's that's why it's called letting go of nothing. You could say letting go of no thing or letting go of non-things. And your website is peterrussell.com? Peterrussell.com with two hours on the Russell. Otherwise, you end up on a typo squatting site. Yeah, Peter Russell, <laughs> Peter Russell with two hours, two hours at the end. That's the important bit. Thank you so much for being with us. It's just a pleasure to sit with you and uh, talk about such things. And uh, on behalf of uh, our audience, I know everyone's appreciated this opportunity. And gosh, I hope uh, maybe a, a year from now we can do it again. Be yep. great to have you back. I'd be happy to. Yes, love to. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. You can find out more about my work at michaelbenner.com. And remember, this program is podcast on all platforms and also streams at theagelesswisdom.com. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, California, this is Michael Benner. You're listening to KPFK-FM.